Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, our text will be verses 12 to 15. Last Lord's Day, we had went over the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world, how the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning, right, concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. We talked about how the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he works through the people of God to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is how the Spirit of God does this conviction through the people of God as they are declaring the gospel, declaring the truth of God, the good news. Today, we are going over the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the church. Really, these verses are what is giving us understanding of the, the work of the Spirit, His purpose, how He works within the church. Because there are so many different ideas today of the Spirit's role within the church. What does He do? What kinds of things does He perform? How does he work within individuals? What kinds of things does he manifest in order to demonstrate his presence in the people of God? We often see many abuses of the Spirit of God. Many abuses within the charismatic movement. We see the things that go on there and we, we are very critical and we should be. Because when it, it comes down to this, we have no right to say what God did not say. And we have no right not to say what God did say. But what he did say is clear to us in the scripture, and that is exactly what we are giving to the people. That's what we teach. That's the foundation of it all. But when you see the abuses in the church today, you're seeing the supposed new revelation that is being given. And it's interesting that if you go even between uh, from the time of Christ's ascension, the early church, throughout the church history, any time that you have, whether it's, big in scope, someone or the Catholic Church or whatever you want to throw in there, coming up with new revelation, it is never consistent with what has been revealed previously. It is always an aberration. It's still going on today. We see things like being drunk on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hokey pokey. We see so many things that go on and just make a mockery out of the Spirit of God. People coming up with new revelation and coming up with new prophecies and the very things that they say have nothing to do with what was previously written and the things that they say do not come to pass. Some of the ones that do believe in continued revelation uh, that are more in the conservative camp of the Christian faith will even admit and they put out these numbers, 70 to 80% of all prophecies that are given today don't come to pass. And that's a problem. That should not be. It should be 100% or nothing. But that's not the case. But in, in our view of these things, sometimes we, we give others a pass. What we end up doing. We say things like, well, these are secondary issues, so let's come together on the primary." And granted, there are secondary issues when it comes to the working of the Spirit of God. But the primary things we must get right. Because it's the primary things that drive and interpret what are the secondary issues. Making a mockery of the Spirit of God is not a secondary issue. You know, when it comes to God the Father and, 
and learning about him and his role and, and all that he does, we're like, we need to get this right. What does he do? How does he show his love? What are his attributes, et cetera, et cetera? When we come to the working of the, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we say the very same things. We need to get this right. When it comes to the personal work of the Lord Jesus, what did he accomplish on behalf of sinners? What are his attributes? What things did he accomplish? But then, when we come to the Spirit of God, we say, well, we can give some a pass when it comes to this. When we are so adamant about getting it right when it comes to the Father and the Son of God. We have to remember this. And these are things that we know. But we have to remember this, that the Spirit of God is just as much God as the Son and the Father. He is just as holy, just as sovereign, just as magnificent, just as glorious. And it is necessary for us to seek to have a right understanding of who He is and what does He do. And this passage really gives us some insight. It is actually one of the longest discourses of the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel. We went over the first portion there, and today we're looking at his ministry to the people of God. It helps to lay that foundation for us, lay that foundation of what he does on behalf of the people of God, his relation to the Father and the Son, and the outworking of what he accomplishes in the church. So I pray that today we would give our attention to this portion of God's word and pray that the Spirit of God would bring it to our minds, to adhere it to our hearts to give us a greater understanding of what he does. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 16, reading from verses 12 to 15. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the words of the living God. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, We've come to honor you this day. We've come to give you praise and worship to ascribe worth to you, the glorious God who has extended his grace and mercy to us in Christ Jesus. Holy Father, you have gifted us with the Holy Spirit of God who has regenerated us, brought us to faith, and continues to dwell with us. Father, we pray that by his working and his power in us, that we would have a greater understanding and appreciation of all that he is and all that he accomplishes in us. Father, guide our thoughts today and bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So Jesus has been giving his farewell discourse to the disciples. There are so many things that he has went over thus far within these previous chapters. As he has announced his departure, 
as he is, has announced the things that the disciples are now having to look forward to. Not only the good things that would come, the joy and the peace and the bearing of fruit and all of that, but on the flip side, they also have to look forward to the hatred of the world, the anger of the world. As Jesus himself, while he was on the earth in his incarnation, was, was the prime target after he has ascended and, and gone into heaven, now the attention is turned to the church and they will be hated because he was hated. Throughout these, these chapters, Jesus has announced the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. And, it, and he announces these things as a great encouragement to the people, to, to the people of God, to the disciples. Their hearts are filled with sorrow. And the greatest encouragement that Christ can give them is to say, I am going to send you another helper, another advocate. The Holy Spirit of God who will be Christ's presence on earth. But still, they are allowing this, this sorrow to overcome them. This, they are distressed because of what is getting ready to happen. His departure. So again, here in chapter 16, he announces again of the coming of the Spirit of God. He says to them, it's your advantage that I go. Again, using the same language that Caiaphas did, that it's more expedient for one man to die than for the nation to perish. And Jesus is using the same language as what Caiaphas did. It's to your advantage that I go. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. These are the things that he's going to do unto the world, the ministry unto the world. He's going to expose their sin. He's going to establish true righteousness because Christ himself is being crucified as a criminal. But he will be vindicated in his resurrection. And the establishing of righteousness in him will occur by the Spirit of God. And the judgment that will come as a rejection of the one who has ascended into heaven. He turns his attention now to speak of what the ministry to the spirit of God what the ministry to the church is by the spirit of God and this is important because we need to have a right understanding we need to to know what does he do how does he how does he manifest his presence within the people of God is it through some of these signs and wonders that we hear today or is there a different way that he does this Jesus says here, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now, this is, this is perhaps because of a few different reasons. One, they are so filled with sorrow that at the very moment in, in their distress and in their grief, they can't handle no more. They can't, they can't give their, their minds over to, to hear what he is saying and to embrace what he is saying because their hearts are filled with sorrow at his departure. It could also be that there is more to tell. It cannot be given now because he has, not, he has not performed the work of redemption yet. But after he accomplishes all that is necessary on behalf of the people of God, then these things will be more evident to them. Either way, Jesus acknowledges to them, you can't, you can't handle it right now. You can't bear it right now. There's still more to say, but sorrow has filled the hearts. Now, this is, you know, this is a great encouragement to know this, that even, even the disciples are so filled with grief at this particular time that they couldn't even handle what Jesus was saying at the moment, within these moments. 
And that is, that is a great encouragement to us because in, in often within our own grief and with our in, with, in our own sorrows, that there are things that we just can't handle to hear. Not in those moments. Because it's too much. Sometimes the grief overtakes us to that extent. And sometimes it is just necessary to comfort us with knowing that God is with us and the goodness of God and, and all of that. And then you can look back at some of the trials and the pains and the suffering that you've been in. You, you can see possibly to an even greater extent what the Lord was doing in that. But at the moment that you were in it, you just you couldn't handle it. It was too much. That's how it usually works. We can look back in some of our trials and in the midst of it, we were, we're, we're just we're trying, we're clinging to faith, we're trying to persevere. And we keep reminding ourselves of God's goodness and his continued presence and all of that. But afterwards, we look back and we see God was shaping and he was molding me. He was doing this perhaps for this purpose, to bring this about or whatever. And then in the same way, the disciples are going to experience this as well. That when they look back in the pain and the distress and the suffering that they are having at this particular moment, and in the hours to come, once Christ is arrested and beaten and crucified, that they will see the great significance of this event. But right now they're not prepared. They cannot deal with it just yet. But here's what he says. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But, but when the spirit of truth, when he comes, he will guide you in all the truth. There is, there, is, there is more truth to tell. And that truth is going to be disclosed to them by the spirit of truth. Now, looking at some of the titles that Jesus is using here to describe the Holy Spirit of God, using that title, the spirit of truth, he's further establishing the spirit's deity, his equality with Christ, because Christ himself says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, there's another advocate coming, one the same as me, is the, the words that he's using there when he says another, one the same as me, and this one who comes, who is equal, is the spirit of truth. He is the epitome of truth. He is coming to reveal even more in light of Christ's finished work. And these verses are explaining to us the, the influence within the church, beginning with the apostles. Now, this truth that he brings, this that he is going to guide them into, Theologians would look and they would say there are three categories of truth that the Spirit of God is going to bring to the disciples, specifically to them, the apostles, who will be known as apostles. These three categories of truth would be, one, historical truth. That when the Spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide them into all the truth, this particular body of truth, not just general ideas concerning the Lord, but specific, specific truths concerning him. And there are three categories in which theologians would place those truths. One, historical truth. As he says in chapter 14, verse 26, But when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. All that Jesus has said to the disciples thus far, all the things that he has taught them, all the things that they have seen and witnessed, the Holy Spirit of God is going to bring back to their remembrance. Perhaps these truths that they had heard before, perhaps had forgotten. He's going to bring it back to their memory. And because the Spirit of God performs this work in them to bring back to their remembrance 
all that Christ has said and all that Christ has done, that's one reason why we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because the Holy Spirit of God brings these truths back to their minds that they record these truths. And another category of truth is that doctrinal truth. When Jesus says here, he will take of mine and will make it known to you. Not only does he guide into all the truth, the things that were previously known that Christ had already said, but he's going to take of mine and disclose it to you. Those doctrinal truths, those doctrinal understandings of things, the implications of what has been brought about by the completed work of our Lord Jesus, the significance of his death, the significance of his resurrection, the significance of all that he's performed are really seen clearer within the doctrinal epistles. When we get into Romans, for example, what is it that the work of Christ has brought about? Well, you go through Romans. What all do you find in Romans? You find everything in Romans. That we're called of God, that we're justified by faith, that we're sanctified, that we're elected, that we're going to be glorified in him. All of these things concerning the work of Christ and what he has accomplished on behalf of sinners is, is seen even clearer throughout the doctrinal epistles. Romans, Ephesians are or all the epistles, give us such clear doctrine, bringing to our understanding the implications of what we read in the Gospels. And then the third category is prophetic truth. He says that he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now, as you look through the writings of the apostles, the writings of, of the New Testament writers, what do you find? Well, you're finding the historical truths, you're finding the doctrinal truths all over the place, and you're finding the things that are yet to come that the Spirit of God has revealed to them. Of course, probably one book that comes to mind is the book of Revelation that expresses to us the things that are yet to come. Depending, regardless of what way that you approach the book of Revelation, whether you approach it as a pre-millennialist or an all-millennialist or a post-millennialist, there are still, still truths that are there that we acknowledge are absolutely future. When you go to passages like Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, we're seeing the great judgment. What's going to happen at the end? When you're going into Peter's epistle, what are you finding? You're finding that the, the Lord is going to purge the earth and you're going to have the new heavens and the new earth. There are things that the Spirit of God has revealed to the apostles of what is still to come. Those prophetic truths. And because we have those prophetic truths given to us, we have even more information that it, the Spirit of God has inspired the writers of Scripture to give us, within the New Testament especially. These categories of truth. The vanquishing of Christ's enemies, the conquering king being victorious over all. We have those understandings of things of what Christ has accomplished, what he did, what he said, his life that he lived, the implications of all that he did toward us, what benefits are toward us, and the victory that we have in him at the end because he's going to be victorious. And that really encompasses the New Testament, doesn't it? Everything within the New Testament is found within what the Spirit of God has revealed to them. Now, we think of perhaps, well, where then 
is, is this new revelation coming from? Do, do, do we have new revelation that is being given? Because people are claiming that today. Well, when we're looking at the time of Christ, the time of the apostles, the new revelation that is being given through the apostles is confirmed in them by the signs, the actual signs and wonders that accompanied them to authenticate the message that was given to them. This is not something that is commonplace within the church. It never was. When you look in the history of, of God's people, from the old covenant into the new, you only have three periods of history in which the miraculous gifts were being given, and they were given in the time in which God was revealing more about himself to confirm the messenger. So you have Moses and Joshua, the time of Moses and Joshua, the time of Elijah, Elisha, the prophets, and you have the time of Christ and the apostles. This is not a commonplace thing. It is not normal for the Spirit of God to work in such a manner to give out new revelation, continue that new revelation, and to do these signs and miracles. And in fact, one the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, he acknowledges that these are called gifts of the apostles, that they were given specifically to them. Then you read in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, that the writer of Hebrews is even removing himself from being in the same group of those that have received the supernatural gifts. In chapter 2, we'll jump in verse 1 of Hebrews 2. The writer says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Right here. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So afterwards, it is confirmed to us by those who heard him, and God testified through them with the signs and the wonders. So even the writer of Hebrews is removing himself from being in that group of having those supernatural gifts, and those gifts of the apostles is what Paul says. You also see one of Paul's companions it was either Epaphras or Epaphroditus as he was sick almost unto death. Why didn't Paul heal him? If Paul had the gift throughout the entirety of his life, and then the rest of those within the church had those gifts as well, why didn't they heal him? Unless the time was coming in which those gifts were starting to wane out. Because they were no longer needed. Because Paul also says in Ephesians 2 that Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets are the foundation. You don't lay a foundation and lay the cornerstone and begin to build and then lay another foundation on top of it. It's laid, and it was laid through them who heard the Lord and passed on that information. So no, there is no longer any need for new revelation. The writer of Hebrews says that God has spoken in these last days by his Son. Nothing further needs to be said. And it's interesting that those that claim to hear from God are some of the ones with the worst theology. Who don't know God. And yet they claim to be the spokesman for the Lord. If the Spirit of God guides into all truth, another question is, if he guides us into all truth as he did the apostles, because this is also applying to us in the sense of guiding us into his truth, why do so many people fall into error? 
Why do we see genuine brothers and sisters in Christ falling into error? Often we fall into error because we don't follow what the Spirit of God has said. That's the problem. When we begin to come up with new ideas, new man-made traditions, new ways of thinking of whatever, inevitably we will fall into error. And you see that occurring in the time of the New Testament because what is Paul doing? As Paul is writing to churches, he is correcting wrong understandings of, of the Lord. Whether it's from the Judaizers or whether it's from early forms of Gnosticism that he's, that he's you know, acknowledging or that he's addressing. When we begin to try to rationalize in our own mind and leave the foundation of the scriptures to try to understand the Lord or try to think of Christ in our own little ways or whatever, inevitably we fall into error because we've left the foundation. And that in, that in itself is what often happens. Somebody comes along with a great idea. Maybe it's a great idea of how to do church. Maybe it's a great idea of just focusing on one particular attribute of God, which will, will inevitably not allow us to focus on the other attributes of God. For instance, how often do we hear, God is love? God is love. That is the only attribute of God that is emphasized, is that God is love. And granted, without question, God is absolutely love. But the attribute of God that is emphasized above any other within Scripture is not that God is love, is that God is holy. And as R.C. Sproul says, the angels in heaven are not flying around the throne room of God saying, love, love, love. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Grace, grace, grace. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. And so God's love is a holy love. His goodness is a holy goodness. His wrath is a holy wrath. We're talking about God's holiness. We're talking about the sum of all the divine attributes of God. The sum of who he is. He's holy above anything else. And so when it comes to his love, his love is not just, just arbitrarily given. It's given to those who are in the Son. And in, in the Son only, we know love. We know what true love is. Not a love that dismisses sin and ignores sin, but a love that addresses sin for our good. that's why we fall into error because we're not being guided into the truth of God we're going our own way one of the most magnificent things that we're finding here within this passage not only of the, the truth that the spirit of God guides us into or he guided the apostles into and through that we have the New Testament but we also see his relationship with the father and the son this is so fascinating to me when it comes to the working of the Spirit of God. It guides us into truth, all of that. And Jesus says, He will glorify me, or He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. He will magnify Christ. He doesn't magnify Himself, He doesn't magnify His own presence. 
He doesn't magnify his own power. He magnifies Christ. He glorifies Christ. Anytime that we see some type of, or we hear of, some supposed manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God, that the Holy Spirit was there and he manifested himself, red flags ought to come up automatically because that's not the working of the Spirit of God because he glorifies Christ. He doesn't glorify himself. He doesn't bring the attention to himself. And that is understood throughout all redemptive history. I mean, think of this. That the Holy Spirit of God, who is just as God as, as the Father and the Son, just as glorious as we were talking about before, just as sovereign, that he inspires the writers of Scripture to point to Christ in the Old Covenant. He is the one who... who Christ performed his miracles through in his incarnation. And so that brought great attention to Christ. He's the one who inspired the apostles and the writers of the New Testament to point to Christ and to glorify Christ. He's the one who regenerates the hearts of sinners in order to call upon Christ in faith. Everything he does is to glorify Christ, to magnify him and not himself. And that is such a, a demonstration of what, as we're talking about how God is love, that's a great demonstration of that love, that the Spirit of God delights. He delights in bringing the attention to Christ. You know, it's so interesting that you, you read here that the Spirit of truth, when he comes, he guides in all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. He will take of mine and disclose it to you. You think of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was sent by the Father. The Lord Jesus only spoke what he heard from the Father. He came in the Father's name. He glorified the Father. Then here you have the Spirit of God who is sent by Christ Jesus. He is sent in the name of Christ. He speaks only what he hears from Christ. He brings all the attention to Christ. He glorifies Christ. That's that mutual love that exists within the triune nature of God. Delighting in one another. Loving one another to that extent. Just as equal. There's no diminishing of the Son and the Spirit in light of the Father. They are equal in all aspects. And yet they delight in glorifying the other. And then when you get to the end, I mean, you think of the Holy Spirit of God who's doing all of these things in order to bring the glory to, to Christ. At the end, when Christ is triumphed and he has brought all his enemies under his feet, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and the kingdom is subject to him, then Christ turns and he subjects it all to the Father, that the Father would be glorified. That's that inner Trinitarian relationship, that love that exists between the Godhead. One writer says this, the mutual indwelling of the Trinity shows us more of what it means to say that God is love. Love seeks union. It is said, and there is more glorious union than that, than, than that shared in God among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The equal deity of each divine person 
makes it possible for them to love each other with infinite fullness. For each person is capable of loving the other at a supreme level and is worthy to be supremely loved. The Spirit does what He does because He loves Christ with that infinitely supreme love. And He delights in doing it. He delights in glorifying Christ. And Christ is, is demonstrating the great love to the Father, the love for the Holy Spirit, as he, he didn't do anything on His own initiative. He did everything through the Spirit of God. You see that mutual love there. And all these truths that the Spirit reveals are to take the eyes of the people of God and to turn it upon the Lord Jesus. To see Him in all of his infinite majesty with eyes of faith. What love that God has not only uh, within the triune nature of God but what he has for those that are in Christ. That he sends the spirit of God to us to guide us into all truth and to glorify Christ in our hearts. Joel Beakey says the first activity of Christ, or the first activity Christ performs after his exaltation consists in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. After creation and the incarnation with its attendant accomplishments, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the third great work of God. End quote. The time in which Jesus is referring to that the Holy Spirit is going to be given is the day of Pentecost. Now, it's important for us to recognize, as we have talked about before, that the significance of Pentecost is not that the Holy Spirit is coming to indwell. He's already doing that. Because you cannot be saved apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, period, under the Old Covenant or within the New. You, know, you talk about Joshua in the Old Testament. Uh, the Lord had said, you know, choose Joshua in whom my spirit is. Obviously, he's indwelling. The time in which Jesus is referring to and the things that Jesus is referring to about this coming of the spirit of truth is when he comes in the fullest measure upon all believers on the day of Pentecost to empower them. Notice his, he's poured out upon the church. He is not indwelling the church. He's poured out upon them on the day of Pentecost to empower them. To empower them for the work of ministry. To empower them to be more like Christ. And that is one of the great things too about this passage when we're looking at the implications. We're looking at what the Holy Spirit does. How he brought this truth to the, the apostles. And now we have the New Testament. How he glorifies Christ. But then when it comes to the people of God, the church. What is he doing? He is sanctifying the church through the revealed truths. That he has brought about in all the writers of scripture. The Holy Spirit does not work independent of the word that he inspired. So our sanctification is dependent upon us being within the scripture, being within the word of God, delighting in the word of God, feasting on the word of God. It is necessary for our growth in Christ that we are in the inspired word of God. This is what the spirit uses to conform us to be more like Christ. He doesn't work independent of the word he inspired. We have that so often today because of the supposed manifestations of the Spirit of God and people getting in such an emotional high or an emotional whatever that we leave the foundation of the Scripture 
and we're only focused on how the Spirit of God is manifesting himself. Do you know how the Spirit of God manifests himself? He manifests himself in you as he is conforming you to be more like Christ. That's how you know that the Spirit of God is in the life of a believer. Because he is conforming us and sanctifying us. That's the very thing Jesus prays for in the next chapter. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We are set apart by the Spirit of God for this very purpose, to be more like Christ. That is the great work that the Spirit performs within the church and the people of God. To present us at the end as a pure, chaste virgin is what Paul says. To prepare us for the great day in which Christ is coming, that the bride is prepared. And he uses the truths that he's revealed to conform us to be like Christ. For instance, this is a very familiar passage to us here in Galatians. Looking in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, we'll jump in verse 17. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Listen to what he's saying there. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is man in his natural state. This is what man does naturally. Any love that man has is going to be a, a very self-serving love. That's why perhaps one reason that you see so many today, especially you hear it more often probably within the celebrity realm, that this one is getting divorced for irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable difference. Because they don't know loyal love, covenant love. Their ideas and definitions of love are different. Because without Christ, how do you know what true love is? But when you are converted by the Spirit of God, you're no longer patterned after, after Adam, who has plunged mankind into sin. Now you are patterned after the Holy Spirit. You are born from above. You're patterned after Him. And now the qualities that you show forth are patterned after Him. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now we read that, and we've been over that numerous times. No doubt we've probably heard that for years. This is the fruit of the Spirit. But are we really trying to define what these things are? That love is not just this emotional love that we have for one another, that, oh, we're just loving people, but it is the love of God. That is now manifested in us. It's not just a flimsy love or whatever. Now you are showing forth the agape love. That love that Christ has introduced us to. That Christ has extended to us. 
So this love of God is, is like God loves. Because now you're patterned after him and the Holy Spirit is accomplishing this in you. That you love as God loves. You don't love as the world loves any longer. You're loving as God does. That's why when it comes to the church or when it comes to a marriage, you're loving with that selfless, sacrificial love. Because that's the love that we know from God. That is demonstrated in the work of Christ as he dies for the ungodly, as he dies for rebels. While we were yet sinners. This is how the love of God is demonstrated to us. We love like this, like he does. The joy that we have within our hearts is this rejoicing in doing God's law and delighting in it. Apart from that, the, 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 fleshly, the fleshly man, is what Paul says in Romans 8, cannot subject itself to the law of God. It hates the law of God. But when the Spirit of God converts the heart, we have joy in the Lord because we're delighting in doing the things of God. As God delights in, in doing what is right, as he only does what's right, and he delights in himself, so too we are now delighting in him as we perform the things that he has written. The patience that we have, the long-suffering. Sometimes we say we shouldn't be praying for patience. Why do we say that? I don't know why we say that. People say that. Don't pray for patience. As if God's ready to just drop the hammer on you. Oh, he said it. She said it. Now let's put them through a really, really bad trial because they prayed for patience. Oh, we should be praying for patience. Patience is one of, of, of these characteristics of the Spirit. Why would we not pray for it? Because in the instance that we're praying for it and we're praying for the Spirit of God to, to give us his long-suffering and his patience, that means that we're not going to be so quick-tempered and quick-tongued when it comes to other people. To say the things that will bring reproach upon Christ, to, th to say or do things that will bring dishonor to Christ. You think of the patience of God. If we were God, we'd have pushed the button a long time ago. End it all. Thankfully, we're not. But he is. He's long-suffering. He's patient. Even in view of all the rebellion that goes on against him, he's patient. He's kind. He's good. There's a generosity of God towards even the unregenerate. A goodness towards them. We call it God's common grace. We should be generous. We should be kind. As Paul says in Romans 12, do good to those who hate you, as Jesus said. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him water. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. There's a generosity that we ought to have and a faithfulness to God, a faithfulness to others, that loyalty that we should have to the Scripture, to the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. And then that self-control. One writer says, The previous mentions of immorality, impurity, and indecency among the vices shows that it is, the very, that it is very appropriate to list 
self-control as an opposing virtue. When we're talking about self-control, we're talking about controlling ourselves when it comes to sin. Because God delights in righteousness. God doesn't delight in darkness. He doesn't delight in sin. And by the Spirit of God in us, that He has, he has worked in our minds, He has worked in our emotions, He's worked in our will to do that which is pleasing in the sight of God. And in the moments in which we are tempted, He always makes a way of escape. So all these characteristics that we're reading of, of the fruit of the Spirit, is all patterned after the Lord. It's not, def it's not defined as the world defines these things. And that's where the Spirit of God is performing this work in us, sanctifying us to reveal those characteristics to us even more of God. How God is loving. How God rejoices in Himself. How God delights in Himself. How God is faithful. To everything that he says, he's faithful to us. You see all of those characteristics in the Lord and in Christ Jesus and in his incarnation. And as we're, as we're studying that and as we're reading that, the Spirit of God applying it to our heart to conform us to be just like that. Now, will it be perfect here? No, not at all. We don't believe in full sanctification. But there should be an element in which we become more and more alive to the Spirit more dead to the flesh throughout our Christian walk. And the one who performs that very thing in us is the Spirit of God by the, by the scriptures that he inspired to use those things, opening our eyes to the majesty of God and calling us to be imitators of God as beloved children. So when you look at the grand scope of what the Spirit does, it's not all this nonsense that we see today. It's not in trying to find signs and wonders and miracles or, or whatever in order to, to feel some type of a, I don't know, security. Maybe, maybe people are, feel more secured in their salvation or something as a result of some of these things. But that's not it at all either. That's why when you read 1 John and you read James that Jason has taken us through, there's not any tests that are in there to say, seek after miraculous things in order that you can be secured in your salvation when you read first john and you read james it's about your obedience and your delight in the lord that's what it's about that you can see how god has worked in your heart the spirit of god has worked in your heart to change you from what you once was once you which was to what you are now if we can look back in our lives and we can see no change, then we have a problem. But if we can look back and we can see just and acknowledge how vile we once were, not that we got it all figured out now, not at all. And interestingly, to bring up R.C. Sproul again, he had done this, this thing once where he had put one person on one uh, part of the stage and another person over there he had one person right next to him in the middle and he said now this one over here represents Hitler this one over here represents Jesus now we're starting out over here next to Hitler and now we're converted and so he's walking this gentleman over closer to Christ the more that we learn the more that we're growing the more that we're we're trying to be more like Christ the closer that we're getting to being like Christ he said but in reality the more that we come to know the majesty 
in the holiness of God, the more that we realize just how much further we are that way. And if we can understand those things, see where we once were and see how God has changed us and changed our perception and changed our view of who we once were and the things of God now, then we can see and know the Spirit of God working in our hearts. Because the Spirit has taken us from that and He has made us children of God. Priests and kings to our God. We can call upon our Lord not as a judge, but as a father. And the Spirit of God manifests this in our lives. If we're looking for what the Spirit does, it's revealing the truth, it's guiding us in the truth, that we glorify Christ just as He delights in glorifying Christ and conforming us to be to the image of Christ. That's what He does. That's what He delights in doing. That's what we need to be delighting in doing too. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us. Father, we, we thank you that the first thing you did when you ascended on high was to grant to us the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, who is another advocate, who who applies to us the benefits of all that Christ has accomplished. Thank you. Thank you for his presence with us. Thank you for his work in us. Father, we, we recognize that we fail often, that we don't love as you love, that we are selfish often. Father, forgive us where we have failed you, and we pray that the Spirit would work even more so in us, working that which is pleasing and good in your sight. And how we thank you that one day we will serve you perfectly. We will love you perfectly. Give you the love that you so rightfully deserve. But thank you that in the time that we are here of the work that he accomplishes in us and how he perfects our worship before you. He perfects our prayer. He perfects it all as our advocate. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit of God. Father, I pray for all of us here that you would continue this great work in sanctifying us by your word, that we will be even more diligent to enter into the scripture and to see our Lord through the pages of what has been written. Thank you for the revealed word of God. Father, work in us, accomplish all you desire. Thank you again. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.